0: Hello and welcome back to Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the Director of the Museum. Last week I gave you a broad outline of the background as to how the Museum came into being and an introduction to the team. This week I'll be taking you on the first part of the tour of the galleries. As mentioned last week, I am not a dyed-in-the-wall professional museum curator. My background was in banking. That said, I am a strong believer that the main purpose of a curator is to act as a bridge. The bridge between the visitor, or in this case you, the listener, and the wonderful artefacts within the collection. My role is to help you cross the bridge and get a feel for these exhibits. To share in the love I have for this window on the guard's heroic past. Rather than start at our front door, I thought we would start on Burcage Walk, just outside the black wrought-iron railings which secure Wellington Barracks. The barracks was built in 1837 and was named after the then Commander-in-Chief of the British Army, none other than the Duke of Wellington himself. The main barrack buildings are more than pleasing to look at, in terms of their symmetry and their classic lines. The wide main block is flanked at either end, a pair of matching detached buildings in the same style. In front of these buildings sits the main drill square and then one finds two matching guardrooms at either end of the drill square which service the two main gateways in the railings through which the sovereign's guards have marched not only across the Buckingham Palace but also on many occasions to go to war. If one stands in St James's Park to look at the barracks and then one casts one's eyes left you would see the imposing presence of the Royal Military Chapel, more commonly referred to as the Guard Chapel. Nestled in between the chapel and the eastern flank of the barracks, sits the stairway down to our front door, for, as you may recall in the last episode, the museum is located underground. As you enter Chapel Square from Burcage Walk, through the 183-year-old iron railings, but before you reach our steps... If you look left, you will see the Flanders Fields Memorial Garden. Executed in fine Portland stone, the front face of the garden, facing Burkage Walk, carries the regimental badges of the seven regiments that make up Her Majesty's Household Division. The seven regiments who have the privilege of guarding the Sovereign and the Royal Palaces. Behind the front wall sits a lawn, in the centre of which sits a large, circular, raised stone repository, which holds the sacred soil brought back from the 70 battlefield cemeteries in Flanders, where 4,096 soldiers of these seven regiments fought and died in the First World War. Giving shade to this memorial are four mature trees, three aces and a dogwood tree, all of which were brought across from the battlefields and all replanted here in the garden. There's also a stone bench cut from Flemish bluestone, once again quarried from the battlefield and brought across the Channel. Around the outside edge of the circular central repository are carved the words of John McRae's famous poem, In Flanders Fields. John McRae was a Canadian Highland officer in the Great War. He was a Lieutenant-Colonel, a doctor serving at a place called Essex Farm, alongside the Irish Guards. He had just buried his best friend and he went back to his trench and wrote this poignant poem In Flanders Fields. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunsets glow, loved and were loved, And now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be it yours, hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep. Though poppies blow in Flanders' fields. Macrae's point was don't you dare forget the sacrifice being made by this generation for your freedom. So we took this as the theme for the garden, the throwing of the torch of remembrance to the next generation with the exhortation, don't forget to remember. The garden remains the best thing we have been involved in here at the museum. I am still awed and humbled by the sheer scale of the sacrifice made by that generation, that generation of men who marched away to war in 1914. So, Now we are descending the four flights of steps down to the entrance of the museum. In the conservatory entranceway is the seated mannequin figure of guardsman Gary Curtis polishing his best boots. He sits there in his green overalls with his tin of kiwi black polish, some cold water in the lid and a piece of twisty rag wrapped around the first two fingers of his right hand. He would have lightly rubbed his two fingers in the polish then touch the other two fingers in the cold water. He would then have gently splashed a few drops of cold water onto his boot before applying the polish to the same area in a series of small circles to work the polish into the leather, and the water to remove the grease streaks from the polished surface. This build up of multiple layers of polish gives the guardsmen their iconic black basalt shining gloss to their boots. The gleaming finish becomes something of an obsession and woe betide anyone who carelessly damages another guardsman's black nuggets. After having invested hundreds of hours in establishing this deep shine, emotions can run very high. And so we enter the museum itself and you are greeted by an array of scarlet and gold and a glimpse of serried ranks of bearskin caps, swords, drums and glinting bayonets. The duty warder, seated at the reception desk on your right hand side who extends a warm welcome and hopefully relieves you of a little coin of the realm. A small price to pay for being able to see this rare and hard-won collection of regimental ephemera. Before descending the six steps from the reception desk to the main display area there is a glass cabinet wherein resides a small beautifully made scarlet and gold tailcoat. It belongs to a young man called William Lothar Pinkerton who was one of the two page boys at the wedding of Prince William to Kate Middleton in 2011. Prince William had just been appointed Colonel of the Irish Guards so this little tailcoat had the distinguishing features of that regiment namely a shamrock on the collar and buttons grouped in fours. The other satisfying nod to the Irish was that the page boy's father, Jamie Lothar Pinkerton served in the Irish Guards before going on to command G Squadron within the Special Air Service Regiment, better known as the SAS. What is amusing is that the design of the tailcoat is of the period around 1825, which is interesting as the Irish Guards were only formed in 1900. As they say, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Also in this display cabinet are two rather gorgeous soup tureens made by the highly talented English silversmith Paul Storr in the early 19th century. He made an entire silver dinner service for the 1st or Grenadier Regiment of Foot Guards. His work is highly sought after, and these two soup tureens are now worth in excess of £40,000 each. As one descends the steps, if you glance right, you will see the gold leaf engraved granite stone that records the opening of the museum, by Her Majesty the Queen on the 19th of February, 1988. A little further on, you can find a glass frame which holds eight Victoria crosses, won by the Scots Guards. As you may know, the Victoria Cross was instigated by Queen Victoria in 1856, and to this day, it is the highest award the United Kingdom can give for bravery. When she came up with the idea she decreed that the medal should be made from a base metal and not a precious metal. The medals are in fact made from bronze taken from the Chinese cannon captured from the Russians at the Battle of Sevastopol in the Crimean War. She did not want the medal itself to be worth anything. She wanted what it stood for to be the thing of value. All it says on it are the two words for valour. It is the most understated of medals Dark bronze on a muted purple ribbon. But it is rarely awarded, and frequently posthumously, so it is an unusual sight these days. In the 164 years since it was first struck, it has only been awarded 1,358 times, which sounds a lot, but when you consider we have had two world wars and countless other campaigns in that time, they are still incredibly rare. There are eight VC groups in the frame and it's ironic that they are now worth in excess of £1.5 million. Not quite what Queen Victoria was aiming for, but their iconic nature and their rarity have made them very much collector's pieces. Above the Victoria Crosses is another frame, containing the orders and decorations of a famous Grenadier officer, Field Marshal the Right Honourable the Earl of Cavan. He was commissioned into the Grenadiers in 1885, and died in 1946, having served for 61 years in uniform. Rather impressive. I just told you about the small uniform made for Prince William's wedding. As you reach the bottom of the stairs and look left, you will see two further children's uniforms. One is of a guardsman in the Scots Guards, and the other of an officer in the Grenadier Guards. Both of these were made for Prince Arthur, Duke of who who is Queen Victoria's seventh child and her third son. These uniforms are not just play clothes, but are actually exquisite in every detail, especially the tiny officer's uniform, which includes a miniature sword made to the distinctive guard's pattern by the famous manufacturer Wilkinson Sword, who made most of the guard's swords for many decades. Sadly, the company no longer exists, but we have several fine examples of their workmanship in the collection, including a sword presented to the Duke of Wellington, while he was commander-in-chief of the British Army. I'm told by my predecessor that before he took over as the curator, these tiny uniforms were still regularly loaned out to guards' officers to be worn by page boys at their weddings. I wince at what might have happened to these rare and valuable uniforms whilst being worn by boisterous children. Just beyond these little uniforms, we have a rather special medal group, These medals belong to Sergeant Major W.H. Dobson, who served in the Grenadier Guards. There are an astounding 15 medals in this group. Amongst others, there are an MVO, an MBE, a Military Cross and a Military Medal. He must have been an excellent Sergeant Major, because he acted in the appointment of Sergeant Major in four different units. He was the Regimental Sergeant Major of the Grenadier Guards, He then became Regimental Sergeant Major of one of the colleges at the Officer Training Establishment in Sandhurst. After that, he became the Regimental Sergeant Major of the short-lived Machine Gun Guards in the Great War, until they were disbanded. After he finished his regular army service, he joined the ceremonial unit known as the Yeoman of the Guard, where, once again, he rose to become their Sergeant Major. After that, he joined my regiment, the Honourable Artillery Company, where he took a commission, and rose to become their quartermaster he clearly served there for some time because he was awarded the territorial decoration for long service this would normally have been mounted with a green and yellow ribbon however uniquely the hac have the privilege of wearing king edward the racing colours red gold and blue as their medal ribbon there are two photos of him one as regimental sergeant major of the grenadiers and one as sergeant-major of the Yeoman of the Guard. In both these photos, he stands there with his closely clipped moustache, quietly reserved, exuding the sort of competent confidence which one naturally associates with the pivotal role of being the sergeant-major, the linchpin of any regiment. There's nothing in British military uniform that doesn't actually mean something. To some, the decoration on these uniforms might seem like pointless adornments, but they all tell a story. We are now standing, flanked on either side, by examples of full-dress uniform worn by the five regiments of foot guards. So this is where we help our visitors understand about the visual differences between the regiments, and the clues to the seniority or the pecking order within the five regiments are all on the uniforms. The story starts to our left with an officer's home service tunic, surmounted by an officer's bearskin cap. This depicts the uniform of the Senior Regiment of Foot Guards. This regiment was formed in 1656 in Bruges in Flanders to protect the exiled King Charles II. There had been several attempts on his life, and a regiment was formed to protect him whilst living in Belgium. He said to the newly formed regiment, You shall be my first guards, and that is how they were styled until 1815. I will explain later how and why their name changed. To show this regiment was the senior regiment within the brigade of guards, their buttons were singly spaced on the front of the tunic. They also had a flaming grenade badge placed on either side of their upstand collar to show they were grenadiers, and they carried a white plume on the left side of their bearskin cap. Why on the left? Well, in the military, everything that is senior goes automatically to the right, So when the regiments were lined up on parade together the first guards took up their position of honour on the right of the line. So for their plume to be seen it needed to be on the left of the bearskin cap so it could be seen by the other regiments. Now older than the first guards were the Coldstream Guards. They were formed six years earlier in 1650. They were formed by General George Monk and took their name from the town of Coldstream on the borders between England and Scotland. They were also known as Monk's Men and the Men of Colstream. You would think being older they would be senior. However, this regiment backed Oliver Cromwell in the English Civil War and for that lapse in fidelity to the Crown they lost their seniority, a fact which the regiment contests to this very day. Not for no reason is their Latin motto, nullae secundus, which means second to none. When informed of this sanction, They said if we can't assume our position of honour on the right of the line, we will go to the other end of the parade and will form up left of the line. This is why the buttons on their tunics are grouped in twos and they have a scarlet plume on the right of the bearskin cap so it can be seen by the other regiments who are lined up to their right. On their collar they carry two garter stars and I will explain why a bit later on. Now older than both these regiments are the Scots Guards. They can trace their origins back to 1642, but they didn't come onto the English regimental system until the late 1600s, so they are third in line. To represent this regiment we have the uniform of a sergeant musician in the Scots Guards. The buttons are grouped in threes and they have the national emblem of Scotland, a thistle, on their collar. Now when they were formed there were only three regiments. And if you weren't on the right of the line, and you weren't on the left of the line, you were in the middle. So there was no one left to see your plume, so that's why the Scots guards do not carry a plume in their bearskin cap. Some would have you believe that being Scottish they were too mean to buy one, but I cannot comment on such scurrilous racist observations. There was a big gap then until the year 1900, when Queen Victoria decreed she would like an Irish regiment of foot guards to be formed. Why did she do this? Well, at the turn of that century, a third of the British army was made up of Irishmen. So in acknowledgement of this significant contribution, she asked to have the Irish Guards formed. We have the uniform of a drummer in the Irish Guards, showing buttons grouped in fours. The Irish Guards carry their national emblem, the shamrock, on their collar. Now you would think that if an Irish regiment was going to have a plume, it might be green in colour and indeed they trialled one when they were first formed. However, there was already a regiment in Ireland with a green plume, so they had to go back to the drawing board, and they came up with an almost electric blue-coloured plume, which took its shade from the colour of the Order of St Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland. Then, in 1915, in the middle of the Great War, the King, who had formerly been Prince of Wales, asked for a Welsh regiment to be formed. To represent them, we have on display the uniform of a regimental sergeant major of the Welsh Guards. Their buttons are grouped in fives to show they are the babies of the brigade. They have the emblem of Wales, the leek, on their collar, and a white, green and white plume. For These are the colours of the House of Tudor, the dynastic family of Wales. So these are our five regiments. There was a poem written in 1956, which set out, in verse... How The regiments line up together. From Coldstream, far on the Tweed, one day, two colonels came marching up London Way, where, finding the Commonwealth losing tone, they set Charles II back on the throne. Then, asked about honours and due rewards, they applied for the post of His Majesty's Guards. This put His Poor Majesty into a jam, and he said, I can't tell you how sorry I am, but I'm afraid that this cannot be as I've brought my guards' regiment over with me. And I think the best I can possibly do is to call them first guards a new number two. This answer occasioned some justified ire, and the colonel's replied, with forgivable fire, in our humble submission we cannot agree, as our motto is nullae secundus, you see. And if, as the first guards, we cannot be reckoned, we'll be third, fourth or fifth guards, but we'll never be second so they left a wide gap where the second should be, taking place Parry pursue as number three. But to safeguard all claims they might otherwise lose, they decided to wear their buttons in twos. And they said to the Scots guards, you stand where you please, provided you wear all your buttons in threes. When the Irish guards came after Africa's wars, they naturally wore all their buttons in fours. And last on the scene, the Welsh Guardsman arrives, And he wears, yes you've guessed it, his buttons in fives. And all the time Colstream said, my dear old chap, don't mind about us, just step into the gap. Before we leave this area, it is worth noting a rather special photograph next to the uniform of the Irish Guards drummer. The Irish are the only regiment in the Brigade of Guards that have a mascot. They have an Irish wolfhound, and the dog is always looked after by a drummer from the regiment's Corps of Drums. All the dogs are named after the great kings of Ireland, the first of which was Brian Boru. On parade for Trooping the Colour, the Hound marches in front of the regimental band as they leave Wellington Barracks on their way to Horse Guards Parade. I asked the drummer why this was the case, and in a broad Northern Irish accent he replied, Sure sir, it's because he knows the way. I also said it was impressive that he marched in such a calm and docile manner, when being followed by 40 very loud musicians a few feet behind him. The drummer observed, Sure, you be calm and docile too, after a couple of paints again us. Having established who the five regiments are, and their relative seniorities, the remainder of the displays are a chronological tour through over 370 years of history. However, before we start that, we must deal with a very large, in fact life-sized tableau depicting the Scots Fusilier Guards at the Battle of Alma in the Crimean Campaign in 1854. It is located at the end of the opening gallery, as this is the only place in the museum with enough ceiling height to accommodate it, which is why it is located here, out of chronological sequence. The Scots Fusilier Guards, along with the Grenadiers on their right and the Coldstream Guards on their left, were fighting the Russians and were losing badly in a very uneven fight in which these three regiments were trying to advance uphill against the superior and well-dug-in Russian force. The tableau is based on the central theme of Lady Elizabeth Butler's famous painting of the battle, which shows three main protagonists, namely Lieutenant Thistlethwaite, Sergeant McEchnie and Lieutenant Lloyd Lindsay. The regiment was taking heavy losses and were forced to retreat back to the riverbank, and it looked like they would lose their colours, the regimental flags which represent the soul of the battalion. The three men just mentioned decided this must not happen, so they rallied the remainder of the battalion and fought forward under heavy fire and won the day. For this gallant action, Lieutenant Lloyd Lindsay and Sergeant McKechnie were both awarded the newly instigated Victoria Cross. Lieutenant Thistlethwaite did not get a medal, Because he died a fortnight later from an attack of the fever, and sadly, in those days, the Victoria Cross was not awarded posthumously. When Lady Butler was doing her painting, she interviewed Lloyd Lindsay and said, I am told that during this battle you neither drew your sword nor your pistol. What were you thinking? He replied, Madam, I was too busy hanging on to the colours. These days, the pike on which the flags are carried, as a gold finial of a crown surmounted by a lion, but in those days the finial was actually a spear tip. Lieutenant Lloyd Lindsay was running the Russians through with the colours, using the colour pike as a weapon. Dramatic stuff. So now we start the chronological tour, and we start our story with the formation of the first guards. As previously mentioned, King Charles II was in exile in Europe after the beheading of his father Charles I. He had lived in a number of places, running up significant debts, but eventually the good people of Bruges in Flanders allowed him to set up his court in exile inside the Guild of St. Sebastian, which is an archery club which dates back to 1379. Charles was accompanied by the Prince of Wales and the Duke of Gloucester, and we have a print of a wonderfully detailed painting showing the room in which Charles II held court and in the right foreground we can see Colonel Wilmot, who was the first commanding officer of his newly formed bodyguard, the First Guards. The Guild is very proud of its role in being the birthplace of the 1st or Grenadier Regiment of Foot Guards, and the bond between these institutions remains strong to this day. The head of the Guild, or in Flemish, the Hooftmann, is called Patrick Flammey, Along with the other Guild members, they remain stalwart supporters of the Guards. Three other Flemish stalwarts, Pete Blankart, Michel van Hoeniger and Nick van der Meliere, also played pivotal roles in the creation of the Flanders Fields Memorial Garden here at the Museum. They are all proud members of the Guild. It was also a very proud day for me when the Guild kindly made me an honorary member of this auspicious club and so I can say, with a deep sense of belonging, their toast, long live the Guild. Above the print of the King's Room in the Guild is a rather fine painting of King Charles II by the artist Sir Peter Lely. Next to that painting is another painting by the same artist, but this time of the founder of the Coalstream Guards, General George Monk. Monk was something of a slippery fish, in that he started off as a Royalist General, but when he saw Oliver Cromwell gaining ground, he flipped and became a parliamentarian. Then, when he saw that Cromwell was losing popularity, he jumped back and became a royalist again. However, King Charles II forgave him this temporary lapse in fidelity to the crown, as it was Monk who sat with the bankers in the City of London and who arranged a finance to fund the restoration of the monarchy in the UK. Without Monk, it is fair to say that it is highly unlikely that the king would ever have made it back onto the throne of England. Monk was truly a kingmaker, and he was appointed as the first Duke of Albemarle. And when he died, even though he was a commoner, King Charles granted him a full state funeral. And we have the book that records that event in detailed drawings of the funeral procession of this remarkable soldier and statesman. One of the conditions that King Charles had to agree to in order to be restored to the throne was to disband the army. This he did, albeit rather slowly, and he left Monk's regiment to the last. Then there was a bit of an uprising in the City of London, and the King managed to persuade Parliament to leave Monk's regiment as a necessary protection force in the capital. This was agreed to, so in February 1661... The regiment was paraded on Tower Hill. Monk got his men to lay down their weapons, and they were formally disbanded. But the king then bade them to take up their arms once again in the service of the crown, but now to be known as the Lord General's Regiment of Foot Guards. He then appointed Monk to the Order of the Garter, which is why to this day the Coldstream Guards wear the garter star as their cap badge and as their collar badge. So the king is back on the throne and he re-establishes the army. This requires new flags or colours to be made. King Charles ordered Garter Principal King of Arms at the College of Heralds to design some for him. The King of Arms did indeed design some and he took his drafts to show the king. He showed him what he had come up with and said, I have also designed a new royal cipher for you, your majesty, which is the two letters C and R standing for Carlos Rex, being the Latin for King Charles, surmounted by a crown. King Charles looked at it and said, no, I don't like it. I would prefer a simpler image of just the letter C, but with it mirrored, overlapped and interlocked with the crown above. And he took a pencil and he drew in what he wanted. How do we know this? Well, we have the original document on display in the museum showing the pencil mark that King Charles II drew in. It lived above the door of the guardroom in Windsor Castle for decades until someone recognised it for what it was and it was removed and preserved for safekeeping. From that day to this, all our monarchs have had their own individual ciphers, which have been a mix of their initials, duly mirrored, overlapped and interlocked. But we all know where it started. Alongside the artefacts depicting the life of General George Monk, we have another contemporary piece in the form of the first ever campaign medal issued by the British Army. It is the Dunbar Medal, issued to commemorate Cromwell's victory over the Scots at the Battle of Dunbar in September 1650. We are used to seeing the head of the monarch on campaign medals. However, the obverse side of the Dunbar Medal sports the head of the then head of state, one Oliver Cromwell, the self-styled Lord Protector. If that isn't bad enough, the reverse of the medal has an image of Parliament in session. May the saints preserve us. Moving around the corner, we come to a display showing what the guards would have looked like in about 1670. We have two life-size mannequins, one of a pikeman and one of a musketeer. They are very accurate representations of what they would have looked like other than the fact that the large 12-foot pike being carried would actually have been another 6 foot in length. Yes, they were 18 foot in length and they were primarily a defence against cavalry. The pikeman has adopted the position entitled Prepare for Horse and Draw Your Sword. With this pike in the vertical position, the pikeman would have driven the foot of the pike into the ground, then placed the instep of his right foot hard against it. He would then have stepped forward a full pace with his left foot and placed his left elbow on his left knee, with the palm of his left hand supporting the pike. Then, with his right hand, he would have reached around the pike to grasp the hilt of his sword which is hanging by his left hip. He then draws it and holds it parallel with the pike. Sounds complicated, doesn't it? Well, let me assure you, it is. You may recall I said my predecessor commanded the company of pikemen and musketeers of the Honorable Artillery Company. Well, so did I. But before commanding the company, I also did several years as the elder sergeant, who is effectively the drill sergeant, so I am well versed in just how difficult it is to adopt this position and then how hard it is to maintain it. You are bearing your entire upper body weight, which is clad in 20-gauge steel armour, on the point of your left elbow. Your steel Morian helmet starts to slip down over your eyes as your forehead starts to perspire, and, inch by inch, you start to lose the world in front of you, as the brim of your helmet slowly subsides across your eyes, and you have neither hand free to stop it. Why did he adopt this position? Well, by driving the foot of his pike into the ground, if a horse did manage to impale itself on the pike tip, the shock wave would pass through down into the ground rather than knocking the pikeman over. If, however, the horse did manage to get past the forest of pike tips, the pikeman was then able to strike up at the rider with his drawn sword as he passes. It rather brings home just how awful these close-quarter battles must have been. The musketeer stands behind the pikeman in relative safety. On the word of command, they would have marched out either side of the pikeman and discharged their muskets in the general direction of the enemy. Because the barrels of the smooth-bore muskets had no rifling, they were hugely inaccurate, even at quite close range. It took nearly two minutes to load these weapons, and it was a fiddly process, so the concept of rapid fire was still some way off. The musketeers had a bandolier made up of charges in wooden flasks hanging from it, Just enough coarse gunpowder and wadding to pour into the barrel, which would then be followed by the musket ball and more wadding to keep it from rolling out. Some fine gunpowder to go into the flash pan near the trigger, and you were set for your next discharge. There were twelve wooden flasks hanging from the bandolier, which is why they became known as the Twelve Apostles. Warfare has come a long way since the 17th century, but when the bullets run out, a guardsman's rifle and bayonet, are still the modern equivalent of the old-fashioned pike. You will be amazed at just how many modern battles have been won by push of pike rather than by bullets. So that's it for this week. I very much hope you've enjoyed hearing about the first few galleries in the museum and to learn about some of the characters who helped form the regiments we see today. Next week, I'll be sharing some stories from our library and hopefully giving you a humorous insight into life within the Guards. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been the second episode of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So, until next time, goodbye and God bless. Now turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up. Down. And get away.